Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Tonight I'm joined by a couple of good friends. I can call my son my good friend because he is my good friend. And Brian Nixon, who is also my good friend. And he just got a haircut. So he's my good friend with a haircut. And Nathan's my good friend who could use a haircut. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. So tonight we're just going to have some fun. And we have, we have questions. Some of the questions you have emailed us, you have texted us, you have written in on cards on the weekend... Some have been texted tonight or are being texted. Nathan, tell us a little bit more if people want to text like even right now. Well, first of all, in response to the haircut, then I have my good friend who's had the same haircut for a long time. (laughs) So there we go. Not only that, not only that, but now it's changing color with the same haircut, (laughs) turning into gray. Well, as I said before, tonight we're going to be taking your questions via text message. We have a series of questions that you submitted um, through cards that we passed out last week as well as through the Internet. But tonight I ask you once again to pull your cell phones out, turn them on, and turn them on silent. And then you can text your questions tonight to 41411. And then in the message type Bible 30K, all one word, space, and then your question. Say that one more time again. 241... To, no, not 241. You text the message 241411. Oh, you text it to and the, the recipient. Is, the recipient of the message is, is 41411. And in the body of the message, you type all one word, Bible 30K, space, and then your message. Okay, now I have a question to ask. How many of you here are like into texting? You do it all the time. Okay. It's, it's more How than How many of us do not do, the, do it that much? See? That's the great divide, isn't it, of technology? It's generational. Brian, do you text? I don't, Skip. I don't text. You don't? No, I don't. Do do you know who Brian Nixon is, by the way? Do you know him? Brian, tell us about yourself real briefly. I work here. Okay, that's good. No, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. I work alongside you, Skip. Yeah, but but Brian, you are, um, what are you? You're a pastor. You've been. Um, you worked at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. Calvary Chapel Costa You're Mesa. You're originally from Albuquerque. Originally from Albuquerque. Plant replanted in California. Re- you know more about me than I do, Skip. Just stop me if I'm wrong. No, you keep going. You're and then you great. came back to Albuquerque. That's exactly right. And and uh, you work here on staff. You are a PhD. Yeah, that's right. I have. I have. So you're a smart guy. Maybe. Yeah, you are. You're a smart guy. You're a great guy. We love having you. Okay, so where do we start? Well, speaking of questions, we have one that just came in. And the question says, how do we make the distinction between which promises and laws are still relevant or still apply to us today from the Old Testament? Well, that's a good question. And this is a text message question that just came in from somebody in the audience. They just texted us this. So, um, uh, and I'm going to give short answers tonight to cover some ground, but... When it comes to uh, uh, promises, principles that are in the Bible, when we find them in the Old Testament, the question we want to ask is, who are they for? What is the context? Um, to whom were they originally written? And then beyond that, is there some application for those outside of the original recipient audience? For example, um, if you look at the Ten Commandments, which so much of jurisprudence was built upon, 
we find that all of the Ten Commandments are repeated in some form or fashion in the New Testament, except for one, and that is the keeping of the Sabbath, which I noticed was one of the questions tonight. And Paul has a whole different spin on that. But the Old Testament, we're told not to murder. The New Testament, we're told not to murder. In the Old Testament, we're told not to commit adultery. Same in the New. And so if not just the Ten Commandments, but principles are reiterated, repeated, and sometimes amplified in the New Testament, uh, were they spoken of by Jesus? Did Paul the Apostle mention them? And, you know, we can get a pretty good idea following that thread. What is the application for our lives today? Skip, I have the questions that people either sent in via the website, the, 30, the Bible from 30K website, or they sent in the cards that we asked for a couple of weeks ago. And this first one is really exciting because it's from a listener or a viewer from Brazil who watches on the Internet. Her name is Ana Fausta. And her question has to do with Revelation chapter 19, verse 16. And I'm going to read that. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here's her question. My grandson and most of his Christian friends are all getting tattoos based on the fact that according to Revelation 19, verse 16, Jesus himself has a tattoo. I was brought up to believe that we are not to defile our bodies with any kind of marks. Am I right? Are the boys right? Does it even matter who's right? Help me out, Skip. You know, I always hate to get caught into family squabbles, you know, right in the middle of it. I'm always the bad guy, no matter what. So I'm going to answer it, first of all, by saying uh, who's right is, is not the issue. What is right is the issue. Um, Okay, I would say, Anna, if your boys are going to quote the Bible to get a tattoo and use Revelation 19, that they, if they want to stick to Scripture, that's the tattoo they got to put on, that he's the King of kings and Lord of lords on their thigh. I mean, you know, it's like you can't take and pick and choose the application to that. Um, here's the deal with Revelation 19. When it says, on his thigh was that banner that said he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what John saw. It's an emblematic form. It's a vision that he sees. But it wasn't on his flesh. It was on his robe. Because a few verses up, he's wearing a robe that is dipped in the blood of his enemies who he's taking vengeance upon on the earth. So it's not like he's displaying his thigh for all to see as he comes from heaven with a tattoo on it. If you look at the whole context of the passage, he has a robe on. And on the robe it is written, and the robe happens to be covering his thigh. That would be more of, of the interpretation. Um, now, having said that, the, the Old Testament prohibition about um, markings and tattoos that comes from the Pentateuch primarily has in its thinking, its ideology, um, pagan worship. They did a lot of that in Egypt and marking one's body that would leave a permanent mark on it that could even look like a tattoo, but a permanent mark that was used for the grieving of the dead back in pagan times. And God didn't want his people following pagan practices uh, in the mourning for the dead because of their belief in immortality of the dead, which was a polar opposite from unbelievers. So I kind of answered it both ways. So it's kind of follow-up, Skip, on that. 
I'm a Christian and I want to go down the street and get a tattoo. Do you really? No. I'm a chicken. Where do you think you'll get it, Brian? I, I, I wouldn't get On it. On your arm? It would hurt. And I don't like pain, that kind yeah. of pain. But can I go get a tattoo as a born-again Christian? Well, yeah, I get asked that as a follow-up question all the time. I'm not going to tell you if you can or you can't. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, the, the, the primary context in the Old Testament of the tattoo has to do with the grieving and marking for the dead, uh, number one. Number two, um, uh, when it comes to what we can and cannot do in the New Testament. There's three guidelines that St. Paul gave us that I like to go by. All things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. They don't drive me toward my goal, number one. Number two, all things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So there are certain things I can do, but if I'm controlled by a habit or a substance, that's wrong for me. I'm brought under its power. It's not under my power. Number three, Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. So if doing something will violate the law of love for other people because they're going to look at my life as I do them, then I'll say no to that because I love people who are seeing what I do and it's a bad example. So I want to make sure that I filter those things through those three filters. That sort of covers the gray areas. Excellent. Thanks, Skip. Well, and thank you, Anna from Brazil. What a tremendous uh, question all the way. Nathan, we have another uh, text question. We have a text from in here tonight, right? The next question that we have from the audience says, What is the temple described in Ezekiel 40 to 48? I believe the temple in Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48, and we did get another written-in question about this tonight, which I might touch on a little more, I believe is a literal temple. I believe it's a literal temple that will be on the earth during the millennial reign of Christ, that he will, in part, fulfill the promise that he made to the Jews, that he would rule and reign from a theocratic kingdom, geocentrically, from Jerusalem, from Mount Zion, and from that temple for a thousand years. So there's great detail that to force symbolism into those nine chapters of the Bible, since it is so detailed and so replete with measurement and description, like the city that is mentioned in Revelation, I think it's safe to say that it's a real temple, not a a symbolic temple or symbolic edifice or an event, but it's a real literal temple that will be for a thousand years uh, in the millennial kingdom. Skip, this one is from Orlando. He writes, if a Christian is living in sin at the time of the rapture and assuming that they are not raptured and left behind, do they still have an opportunity to be saved during the tribulation period, taking into account, quote, the strong delusion, end quote, written in 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12? Well, let me answer just the first part of that question about... Um about if a Christian continues to practice sin and he's up against the rapture. First of all, listen to that question. I'll read it because I have a copy here. If a Christian is living carnal and continues to practice sin. So let's take the rapture out of the equation. If a Christian continues to practice sin, question mark, where First John says, whoever abides in him maintains a constant living communion, That's the word for abide, meno, does not sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. 
A better translation, whoever abides in him does not continue to practice sin. Now, we all sin. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. But it should be that as we continue our spiritual walk with the Lord, our sin decreases. It doesn't have the grip on us. I know there are besetting sins that some people find a hard time getting over. And when that happens, I think the response is going to be a Psalm 51 kind of a response where David recognizes it and he's grieved by it. And it still just might be so deep inside of his flesh that it's a besetting sin. Uh, Hebrews 12 mentions that. But sin should not increase or be maintained, but be on the decrease. So the issue becomes rapture or not. At what point is a person a Christian? If a person is a Christian by faith in Jesus Christ alone, then he's saved. And if he's saved, then when the rapture comes, he's going to heaven. It's not that you have to maintain a certain bar of perfection. And if you have an evil thought at the time of the rapture, God's going to go, oh, I'm sorry, you can't go. You just, you just blew it. And it was enough for me to let, not let you in heaven. Well, then that sort of defies the whole salvation by grace and through faith alone and the finished work of Christ on the cross. If it's finished, it's finished. And uh, you're saved. Um, the question for the individual must be, am I sure that I'm a Christian? And to take into account First John, which says, if you abide in him, uh, you don't continue to practice sin. I think that's the issue. So rapture or not, it's an issue of how one is saved, and that is by God's grace. But then the follow-up second part of this is, is there going to be an opportunity for individuals to be saved during the tribulation? Oh, there'll be plenty. The tribulation period is going to be, and it's one of the questions actually that was sent in uh, further on down. Um, During the tribulation, there's going to be massive evangelism, massive evangelism. Um, There's going to be two witnesses that perform miracles that get the attention of the world, because the whole world will see them when they're dead and resurrected. Um, 144,000 Jewish people will become Jewish believers, Messianic believers, at the witness of the two witnesses. And the 144,000 seem to be the catalyst for an innumerable multitude in Revelation chapter 11. And the result of Revelation chapter 11 being two witnesses, 144,000, innumerable Gentile multitude, is all of heaven breaks out in an anthem of praise and worship at the salvation and the redemption of so great a multitude. Now, having said that, if anybody's thinking, well, you know, I've heard people talk about Christianity and the rapture, and if it happens, if the rapture happens, then I'll pray to receive Christ. Well, read the whole story. Because the whole story says it's going to get pretty gnarly during the tribulation and that innumerable multitude will be killed for its faith in Christ. If you don't have the mark on your forehead or right hand, the mark of the beast, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be put to death and you won't be able to buy or sell. So it's going to be hell on earth. I say, instead of waiting to die for Christ, why don't you just live for Him right now? And if you can't, li- if you can't live for Christ now in the age of grace, what makes you think you're going to have the strength to die for him then? You know, just give your life to Christ. Do it now. Why waste a whole life? <laughs> Isn't it funny how people say, well, you know, I, I kind of want to have a lot of fun. And then when I've got nothing left, I'll give my life to Christ. You don't get it. You don't understand the Christian life and how joyous and great it really is. 
And I think along with that too, the Bible says we don't know the day or the hour when it's going to happen. That you could say, well, I'm going to give my heart to Christ later on. Well, what if you don't get later on? What That's if you right. only get right now? Today is the day of salvation. We, have, we, we had a text message right before this, and I looked at it, and now it's gone, and something else is up. Do you know Yes. What? The question was this. What was the hardest book for you to fly through, and why? Oh, that's so hard, and it's so subjective. The hardest one for me to fly through was probably the book of Proverbs, because it defies the same kind of analysis and outlining that every other book has. Every book has its own theme and distinct divisions and it follows an outline and follows a progression of thought. Proverbs isn't assembled quite that way, so you have to approach it differently. That was a little more challenging. Actually, they were all challenging. I've never taught the Bible like this before. I'm used to starting with Genesis and going through uh, Revelation and going deep. It's hard for me to teach a survey because what I have to leave out And I had to leave out a lot to fly over it quickly. It's like, okay, look out the side of your plane. There's that, there's that, there's that. We're landing now. So that's kind of tough to do that. Skip, this one's from Terry, who writes, What is the lie written about in First and Second Thessalonians? Hmm. Well, yeah, keep going. Referring about the powerful delusion so they will not believe the lie. Yeah. We should quote the scripture. It says in, in Second Thessalonians, that um, God will send them, those in the world, a strong delusion, and they will believe, not a lie, but the lie. And because it is emphatically put, the questioner is, is asking an emphatic question. What does the lie mean? What is the strong delusion that God will send them? And why would God send them a delusion? This is God's response to what they already want. Part of the judgment of any nation or the world is when God gives us what we want. God gives us over to our own desires. Um, In the tribulation period, uh, in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist will set himself up as God. 2 Thessalonians tells us that. And uh, he will demand to be worshipped. It says in 2 Thessalonians, in uh, that chapter that is referred to, that he sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. That is the lie. The lie is that that Antichrist, not Jesus Christ, that Antichrist is God. That is the lie. That is the delusion. And God will have removed his restraining power from off the earth, let people have what they have always wanted, and it has always interestingly been Satan's desire to have that kind of adulation. He was, he was the anointed cherub, the Bible says, who covers. And he fell. He was kicked out of heaven. And he was kicked out of heaven because he said, I will ascend above the throne of God. I will be like the Most High. He always wanted to have the same kind of attention, adulation, worship, and praise that God has. And he was booted out of heaven for that. Well, his reign is now upon the earth. And during the tribulation period, there will be masses of demons belched up from the abyss, the abuso. Uh, There'll be strong deception, strong delusion. And I believe when Paul talks about the falling away, since the falling away is linked with the man of sin, there'll be a falling away, then the man of sin is revealed. 
that the falling away isn't the falling away of the church before the rapture, but it's the great falling away during the tribulation period and the belief worldwide that the Antichrist is God as he sits in the temple. So when it refers to the lie here, it's specifically referring to the Antichrist. The abomination, the abomination, of, abomination of desolation. The desolation as opposed to a general lie such as evolution or other things of that nature. Right. What else you got there, Brian? You know, I think that's one of the reasons probably, too, why it's so important to have a Bible-teaching church because I'm sure those people wouldn't fall away if they had read the Bible and understood it properly in its context. Then they'd realize, oh, well, maybe the things that are happening now we heard about before, and it would would cease the falling away to some, some extent. Right. This is from Karen, and she writes, Pastor Skip, you teach that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How then do you reconcile the Old Testament God, who is full of wrath and judgment, with the New Testament God, who is full of mercy and grace? Well, I do it from the text itself, um, Karen. Um, I I, I did look at your question, and... uh, There is no difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Think about the Old Testament for a minute. In the Old Testament, you have God sparing Egyptian and Israelite indeed, anyone who's in the house where the blood is applied. It doesn't matter. The Israelites did it. Some Egyptians who believed did it. But it was those who were covered by the blood. That was Old Testament and that was God sparing people in grace from His wrath. Here's another passage in Ezekiel 18. God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Now that's God in the Old Testament, supposedly this angry, wrathful God in the Old Testament, saying, I don't have pleasure in the death of the wicked. So you have the Bible, Old and New Testament, that is the story of both God's love, mercy, and wrath. Now, here's a question that Karen asked. She said, How can we be sure God doesn't still judge us as he did in Old Testament times? Isn't that part of the question? That that is part of the question, How can we be sure God doesn't still judge us as he did in Old Testament times? Well, now listen carefully. He does. There is no difference between the God of the Old Testament and New Testament. The wrath of God is either poured out on Jesus Christ and you let him take the wrath for you, or you take it yourself. That's no difference from Old Testament to New Testament. So the idea that God has suddenly changed, and now in the New Testament, God doesn't have any wrath. Karen, I wish you'd have been here on Good Friday when we explained this out in the amphitheater. The difference between the love of God and the justice of God. God has to be loving because that's His nature. But God's love can't be sloppy and sentimental. It can't be love and yet refusing to deal with sin. Because if you have a God who overlooks sin and doesn't deal with it and doesn't do anything about it, that God is not loving. That God is amoral, not loving. So how can God be righteous and loving at the same time? By allowing all of His wrath and anger to be put on a substitute, Jesus Christ, so that He can extend His love to us, yet His wrath is satisfied at the cross. Great answer, Skip. This next one, I'm going to blend it in with the text question because they're similar. Okay. The question that we have before us, Skip, is from Nancy, and it says, Why do the New King James Version and the New International Version Bibles not include some of the books found in the Catholic Bible, including Tobit, 
1st and 2nd Maccabees, Sirah, and others. And then generally she asks, what does Calvary Chapel believe about these books? And then the text message is, what Bible would you recommend and why? Meaning what translation, I think, is what the text message means. Okay, let me answer the first one. The books that uh, uh, Nancy is referring to, we call the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha principally refers to a a group of, of writings that are Old Testament, actually intertestamental, many of them, but they are not included in the Protestant Bible, but they're included in Catholic Bibles. There's about 14 or 15 of these books. Um, what's interesting is none of the New Testament writers quote from them. There may be a reference or an allusion to, but never a direct quote from any of those books, whereas they will freely quote from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, and the other prophets. So there's scriptural precedents, New Testament authors and Jesus himself quote from books that are God-inspired, not from these apocryphal books. Also, there was a council of Jewish elders called the Council at Jamnia in 90 AD, roughly the time when Revelation was being written by John. And they were deciding upon which books in their Bible, their canon, Old Testament, were considered canonical, authoritative, real books. And they wholly rejected 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees. And, and, and why? Because of certain references that were written in them that contradicted the prophets, the law, the writings, and sometimes even themselves. So they were excluded even before New Testament uh, canon. Now, come uh, the Council of Trent uh, by the Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s, they decided... Let's add those books into our Bible. Okay, so suddenly they have not been in any Bible until 1500 A.D. Now the Council of Trent says, let's include them in our canon. These are the books that predate Christianity that even the Jews said, we don't, re- we, we don't accept, we reject. But now all of a sudden, 1500 years later, they go, let's accept them. Why? It was a reaction to the Reformation. The Reformation that held up faith alone, grace alone, by Christ alone, no works. You know, you don't pray for the dead. But because, for instance, 2 Maccabees talks about praying for the dead, hence the Catholic doctrine of praying souls out of purgatory, because there's that mention, they adopted these new books to give them some kind of supposed biblical ground for their belief system as a reaction to the Protestant Reformation. And and on, on that, great insight, great historical lesson. What Bible translation oh. would you recommend? Well, there's so many good ones, um, and for different reasons. I read the New King James. Um, the King James is good. The New King James is good. The New American Standard is good. It's great, very accurate, a little wooden or stiff in its translation. The New International Version is great. Um, uh, the New Living Translation uh, is, is good. Uh, all of these have merit, Brian, and all of these have drawback. There's two different styles of translations. First of all, there's two different methods, basically. There's many, but two main methods. One is um, formal equivalence, and the other is dynamic equivalence. Formal equivalence is more of a word-for-word translation. Dynamic equivalence is more of a thought-for-thought, tone-for-tone, idea-for-idea. How do we take ancient writings and make it in a vernacular that makes sense in our idiom today. 
That's dynamic equivalent. NIV, dynamic equivalent. Um, uh, New International, dynamic equivalent. Um, and New American Standard, New King James, King James, formal equivalent. It's a little more word-for-word uh, word oriented. Um, the New King James claims to be complete equivalence, not dynamic equivalence, not formal equivalence, but somewhere in the middle. They make room for idiom, but they try to track more with the wording. I like the New King James because if somebody comes with an old King James, they can follow along with me. If somebody is with a New American Standard, they can follow along with me. If somebody has an NIV, they can follow along. There'll be minor differences, but this is sort of in the middle, whereas if I went on either of those sides, especially if I went like with a New Living Translation, there'd be a large population of other Bibles that could not track with it because it varies so dramatically. So that's sort of right in the middle. Also, the New King James is an eighth grade reading level. The NIV is about a 6th grade reading level. The NLT is about a 4th grade reading level. The King James is a 14th grade reading level or second year of college. It's Elizabethan English. It's highly formal. And it used to be 30, 40, 50 years ago that a young child could understand the King James Bible. But we have dramatically dumbed down our culture. And you give a King... Seriously, you give a King James Bible to uh, a 12-year-old and it's like, whatever. It won't make sense, but it did at one time. The next question we have is a text message from the audience. And it says, why did God make man and then regret it? God knows all things. How can God regret? Well, when it says that God made man and then he repented of it in Genesis, it's, it's an unfortunate translation. God regrets the sin that they committed, but obviously God knew that man would commit sin. Since Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, it anticipated man's sin. It anticipated man's failure. So why does it, why does it say that? Why does the Bible make statements like, it repented God that he made man? Because when I read that, I understand that. Once, once I get past the... Well, that sort of sounds like a contradiction. Emotionally, I get it. And that, that's um, a linguistic form called an anthropomorphism. And anthropomorphism is a term that describes God in human language. It's, it's so that human beings can somehow get their minds around transcendent, holy, perfect God. We couldn't understand Him otherwise. So there's lots of anthropomorphisms. Example. The hand of the Lord is not short. Now, does that mean God actually has a hand with five fingers? Or the arm of the Lord, or the eyes of the Lord, or I, I will be protected under the wings of the Almighty. Now, does, does that mean God's a big chicken with wings? Well, that's ridiculous. That's an anthropomorphism. God is expressed in human language so that humans can go, I get it, He's protecting me. I get it, He's controlling my life. That's all that is. Well, we have another question here, another text, and it says, There was a Time Magazine article recently published entitled, The Ten Most Powerful Ideas of 2009. And number three was called, The New Calvinism. Is this idea new? Well, look at the name. Calvinism, he's been dead a long time, so it's not all that new. Um, the New Calvinism is, uh, is, is sort of a new wave of modern Christianity, and what, what a group of people will say is, well, we're Calvinists, but we don't deny things like evangelism. Whereas they'll say the old Calvinists did uh, uh, not 
agree with evangel. I'll give you a little story. Uh, Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I love to read. I have a book signed by him. Of course, he was in heaven way before I was around. But uh, he was around when Billy Graham was doing crusades in England. And I was at Billy Graham's house years ago, and he told me this story personally, so it's special to me. He said, when I was in, in London, England, I was doing a crusade. And uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a Calvinist, um, had a great church there in London, England. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan pastored it before him. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, a royal physician, now a pastor, but a Calvinist. And uh, Billy Graham said, Dr. Jones, I'd like you to be involved in our crusade in London. And he said, Dr. Graham, I will be if you promise not to call anyone forward at an altar call. Because we don't believe that God works that way. If you don't do a public altar call, I'll get behind your crusade. He said, well, I won't do that. Well, then I won't be involved. So the new Calvinists will say, well, we're not that hard-pressed against evangelism. We do believe hard in predestination, etc. But we do make allowances, bless their heart, for um, calling people to Christ. Which only makes sense, because if God ordains people for salvation, God ordains the means by which they can be saved. And one of those means can be calling people to Christ and having them make a decision for Christ. So... That's sort of the idea in a nutshell behind the difference between the old and the new. You know, I'd just like to add something to that because I think I've, I've heard you say numerous times before uh, that the, the truth is the Bible teaches both as far as predestination and free choice. And ultimately, we might not be able to understand that with our finite minds. God has a reason, and we just have to trust that salvation is of the Lord, and we have the choice to accept that. And He also knew beforehand that we would also accept Him. And, and, and however it works, praise the Lord that it works. And let and me make a plea right now that. for media and mass evangelism. I'm a product of it. I watched Billy Graham one afternoon on television when he said, You come. And uh, I did. I was behind a television, but I just right there prayed that prayer, wrote in, and it's not like, well, that didn't count. So, Skip, you're not saved because you got saved at a public event. That's ludicrous. The idea that you can't call people to salvation is ludicrous. Um, even, uh, even Charles Spurgeon, an ardent Calvinist, uh, would have agreed with calling people in evangelism to Christ. So... Uh, Listen, I appreciate John Calvin, and so I'm not down on Calvin, but goodness, instead of following Calvin or Arminius, they're both dead. Jesus is alive. Let's follow him and his word and forget about these little camps. Amen. Skip, this one is from Leonard, and Leonard writes, I would like to know the difference between the spirit and the soul. Is it even relevant to know the difference? And he continues, John in Revelation was caught up in the Spirit. Jesus on the cross gave up his Spirit to the Father. Then he asks again, what is our soul? Is it our earthly connection to God? It's mentioned together a few times with Spirit, and I just want a confirmation. As long as we love our Lord Jesus, I know that's all that matters. But I want to know, is there a difference? Well, that's a great question. And Leonard, let me just say that you jumped into a theological quagmire that has been debated for a long time. Um, um, sometimes the Bible uses soul and spirit interchangeably and, and even throws in another one, your heart. And these are terms that when put all together are used, if you're familiar with literature, appositionally, 
one referring to the other and building upon the other, but speaking of the same thing. They're synonymous. So, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength. It doesn't mean you now have to do a word study and say, well, this is part is my body, this part is my mind, this part is my strength. This part. You don't have to do that. It's nonsense. The idea, the big theme is all of you, everything within you, passionately love God. That's the idea. Now, having said that, the, the, the debate between the nature of man, Brian, which some call, refer to as the bipartite, versus the tripartite nature of man, bipartite being soul and body, uh, or spirit and body, using those terms interchangeably, synonymously. Let's say there's an inner man and an outer man. There's a flesh and there's the heart or spirit or soul, versus the tripartite nature of man. Some hold to the tripart, uh, and they'll refer to the text in Thessalonians where Paul uh, wants God to sanctify you body, soul, and spirit. Now, it could be that Paul is referring to three different parts of human nature, or he's simply a way of saying all of you. May God sanctify all of you, in and out. Kind of a follow-up on that, Skip. When the Holy Spirit enters into a Christian life, and we believe as you know, biblical Christians that the Holy Spirit actually comes in and he, he dwells in us, where does he dwell? Does he dwell in our mind? Does he dwell in our soul, in our body, spirit? Where, where would the, the Holy Spirit take up residence in the life of a Christian? Yeah, that is a great question, and, 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 and I don't think I'm going to give you a great answer. It's a philosophically uh, inclined question. Um, uh, you know, the idea that God has to dwell in us corporeally so that all of a sudden when I'm born again, he's like dwelling in now my fingertip and all the way down to the palm of my hand, and I feel him in my elbow. And, you know, you laugh, but I've been in some churches that actually talk that weird. And it's like, okay, that's kind of spooky. Um, uh, he d- definitely dwells in the inside, um, uh, uh, but in what, in what capacity can he be said to dwell in us uh, is, is a question that is, in some cases, quite beyond our ability to comprehend uh, because of the nature of it. I think the terminology expresses more the relationship instead of the direction or the orientation spatially. We shouldn't think in terms of like an engineer. Okay, what part exactly is it? But it's drawing a difference between the relationship of the believer and the relationship that he has with his Lord. You know, thank the Lord that we can't understand everything about him too because if we could understand everything about him, then he would probably be too small for us to worship and praise. So... Praise the Lord that he has some mystery to his, true. to his nature. We have a text message coming up here, don't the we? The next question we have is, what is going to happen to the Jewish nation after the rapture? It's a good things. Good things and bad things are going to happen. The bad things that are going to happen is that in the middle of the tribulation period, a covenant that God makes with the Jewish people, that, that the man of sin, the man of perdition, the Antichrist makes with the Jewish nation, will be broken right in the middle of the period called the abomination of desolation, where the man of sin demands to be worshipped. It is, it is the utmost blasphemy because it takes place within the temple precincts of the rebuilt tribulation temple itself. And so the, the worst form of blasphemy, um, modeled after what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes, 
uh, back in the intertestamental period will happen, but on steroids in the tribulation period. Massive blasphemy. Okay, the Jewish nation will be then persecuted, Revelation 12 tells us. They will flee into the wilderness, the same chapter tells us. Well, they'll be protected by God. That's the good part. They're protected by God, but they're persecuted by the Antichrist. But because of the witness in chapter 11 of the two witnesses, whom I believe are Moses and Elijah, um, that 144,000 of them will be saved. So during the tribulation period, you're going to hear of a lot of Jewish people who come to faith in Yeshua as their Mashiach, as their Messiah. Skip, I'm going to pass over question seven because you've already already alluded to that. So I'm going to move to question eight, which is from Randy. Randy writes, can you give a clear explanation of the freedom of choice God gives us? And he continues, I realize we all have the ability to choose right from wrong, left from right, McDonald's or Wendy's. But he already already has our plan written according to that choice we made. That much I grasp. The part that seems to lead me back to predestination is the aspect that God already knows the future and what choice we will make. So, are we destined to make that choice? Ultimately, this is a question about predestination. These aren't, um, these aren't like really easy questions, are they, Brian? They are not, It's Skip. like people have chosen like the deepest, hardest questions that haven't been answered for 2,000 years by any theological school to, to ask tonight. So you go ahead and answer it right now for us. What's that? So no. you answer it for us. I mean, it hasn't been answered for 2,000 years. I'll take a stab years. at it, but I'm going to only touch on it briefly on the surface. So the question asked that uh, Randy asked is, um, uh, the, are we destined to make that choice, uh, or does God already know the choice we're going to make and hold us? Are we destined to make that, or can we choose it? Randy, it depends on which end of the telescope you look through. If you look through man's end of the telescope then humans certainly have a choice to play in it. Jesus appealed to the choice of his disciples and called them to follow him. He didn't say, James, John, you can't help it, and you have nothing within yourself to even be able to follow me, but I predestined you, so get up. And they went, yes, master. It wasn't a robotic thing. He appealed to their ability to make a decision, a choice. The Bible does that all the way through it. But if you look at it through God's end of the telescope, then he, you see that we're chosen in Christ and predestined before the foundations of the earth. Both are true. Neither is true by itself and of itself apart from the other truth. I mean, how do you reconcile Jesus asking them to make a choice to follow him, and they did, and then later on say, oh, by the way, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and ordained you to bear forth fruit. How do you reconcile the two? You're looking at two ends of the telescope, from God's end and then from man's end. Now, um, God makes a choice. We're predestined. But according to Peter, his predestination, or his ability to make a choice beforehand, is tied to his foreknowledge. We are predestined according to the foreknowledge of God. So I don't think anybody's predestined to be damned and you can't change it. You might as well just go to hell because you're not going to change it. I'm not going to change it. And that's the strict Calvinistic viewpoint that refuses to do evangelism. Because after all, if you're predestined for it, I'm not going to get involved. So it's, it, that's how ludicrous that thinking is. Um, 
Um, the Bible says, whosoever will, let him come. The Bible's filled with that kind of invitational talk. So um, don't just look at these truths from one end of the telescope. Look at them from both ends of the telescope. We have another... Oh, no, that's a text message, but that's not really has to do with our Bible study from 30,000 feet. I would say that that's a counseling session. There we go. So whoever asked that question, okay, you go know ahead and, you and read the text and they'll understand. Question. I got divorced from my wife and now we have reconciled. We both were saved recently. Do we have to remarry or renew our vows? Okay, I'm, actually, I'm, I didn't even. I, yeah, okay. It's a good question. It really has nothing to do with the Bible from 30,000 feet, but since that is mentioned in the Bible, see, I'm thinking out loud. I'll, I'll, get, I'll take a stab at it. Congratulations, first of all, that you were reconciled. Rather than looking at that academically, I look at that as a pastor and I go, hallelujah, there's been reconciliation. So that's a praise report. Um, do you have to renew your vows? You've already done that when you have reconciled. Uh, whether you do it publicly or not uh, isn't the issue. Now, if there has been a formal divorce and you've reconciled, uh, then you need to have, I think, a, you, you need to make it a, a legal with the government sanction since the Bible does acknowledge the role of the state. You've got to make it legal. It's not like, well, we're officially divorced, but, you know, we just think we're married now. No, no, get married now. Good advice. This is from Steve. Did you write that? No. Oh, okay, I'm just kidding. I don't know how to text, Skip. I'm I don't just, know how to I'm text. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> And I can't project things on the screen. I, okay. I'm, I'm technologically inept. This is from Steve. How are you guys doing, first of all? So far, you're doing all right? Okay. You've been doing really good, and we're almost done, by the way. You didn't ask how Nathan and I are. <laughs> My feelings are hurt now. My well, inner child's crying. I see us all as one. Oh, good. Good answer. Good answer, Skip. This is from Steve. Steve writes, in the epistle of James, it says that faith without works is dead. This is what the Roman Catholic position uses to justify how important an accumulation of good works is for salvation. Then, in Romans, it is mentioned numerous times that it is faith, not works, that saves an individual. What is a good argument to show that it is indeed faith and not works that brings us to Christ? Well, it's a good question. It's an often asked question. It's a question that says, did James and Paul disagree since Paul said it's, we're saved by faith apart from works? And then James says, faith without works is dead. Um, so it's a good question. It would make, at first glance, somebody saying, there's a disagreement, a discrepancy in the Bible. James doesn't agree with Paul's salvation by grace through faith alone. You can't get any further from the truth. First of all, when the question says that people are trying to use this to justify their position on how important an accumulation of good works is for salvation, the text says nothing in James about accumulating good works for salvation. So to draw that interpretation from it is foreign to the text. The text says nothing about that. It's simply, in the prelude to the text, it says... Um, uh, if somebody says, I have faith, um, uh, but he does not have works, how can faith save him? Literally, if somebody says, I have faith, but doesn't have works, how can that kind of faith save him? Okay. 
The point James is making is the same point Paul is making. But Paul is speaking about the root of salvation. James is talking about the fruit of salvation. The root is faith. The fruit are works. If you have the root, you'll produce the fruit. If you have faith, the faith will work. It'll be authentic. If somebody says, I'm a Christian, I've always been a Christian, but they're living a lifestyle of sin and disobedience, there's no works. Can that kind of faith save him? No. Faith without works is dormant, dead, non-productive. There's no fruit. So it has no root. A good tree bears forth good fruit, and a bad tree bears forth bad fruit. Correct? That is correct, yes. Yes. Skip, Nathan just pointed out that we are coming close to the end of tonight's service, so I'm going to jump to question number 20 Okay. in this. And I have a question left. 20 doesn't have a name associated with it, but it says, Last Wednesday, we don't know which Wednesday that was, but you, Pastor Skip, touched on life starting at conception. My husband and I are in our early 20s and want to wait to have children until I am done with my college degree. Hmm. As Christians, is it okay to use birth control? Again, a hot potato. Um, (laughs) The Bible doesn't address birth control specifically. does not address it. The text, if somebody's thinking of that text in the Old Testament with Onan and the spillage of his seed on the ground and then his subsequent death... Don't go there. It has nothing to do with that at all. It has to do with inheritance in the land of Israel, etc. The Bible doesn't address it specifically. And that's because the Bible's plan originally is to be fruitful and to multiply. Now, I think what a couple has to do is consider before God what is best for their family. Um, Birth control that prevents pregnancy is totally different from birth control that terminates pregnancy i.e. abortion. That's wrong. That's killing the unborn. That's killing a life that is already in progress and is growing from the womb. God is developing that within the the womb of a mother. Um, But to not allow that to happen for a period of time, that kind of birth control is different. Now, some people will disagree and say, you know, it's wrong, it's unnatural. Um, I guess driving a car is unnatural too because we're meant to walk. But... uh, I think that I think that uh, that to prevent a pregnancy is you're not allowing that to happen, which takes a whole new level of responsibility. Once life has been conceived, you don't terminate the pregnancy. You nurture that and nourish that, and you bear children. Um, for a couple then to say, look, economically and educationally, we want to wait a little bit. Um, uh, I think is fine. I think that to enjoy one another, as Hebrews 13 says, that a marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled and that physical enjoyment is to be cherished in a marriage relationship. There's nothing wrong with that. And then taking the responsibility when they're able to have children. I I see nothing wrong with that. Skip. Oh, I'm sorry, Nathan. Go ahead. And if God wants you to have a baby, I'm pretty sure there isn't any birth control that can stop you from having that child. I've known plenty of couples that have gotten pregnant on birth control. So, Okay, so now do we have time for any more? Or are we we do, we do. We have time for one last question, sadly. Is it going to be a written one or a text it's one? It's going to be a written one because it, it kind of summarizes the Bible from 30,000 feet. And this is from Chris. Chris writes, hey, Skip. Hey, Chris. Since you uh, and me and everyone knows that we're going through the whole Bible, I just wanted to ask if you could give the best answer to someone who asks, how do you know... The Bible 
is true and reliable. Okay, briefly. Accurate transmission. The text, the message has not been marred, though it has been copied and copied and recopied over thousands of years. If you look at the 5,500 manuscripts and fragments that we have that date back to 30 years from when it was originally written in some cases and look at uh, translations, uh, quotes by church fathers, etc., you can see that it's pretty accurate. Number two, um, you have prophecy. You have uh, predictive elements where the Bible predicts things that will happen before they happen. Um, Number three, you have uh, have unity, uh, Brian. You have... Uh, a book that is essentially 66 books written over 1,500 years in three different languages on three major continents by people from all walks of life writing about the most controversial subjects in the world like the purpose of life, and they all agree. As an experiment, Josh McDowell says, take 10 people in your neighborhood who speak your language from your time period on your continent and put them in a room and have them individually write an essay on the meaning of life and you'll have 10 at least different, differing opinions. So, uh, you know, that in, uh, it, uh, that in and of itself is pretty remarkable. It truly is. Okay. We skip. I, I, I'm looking at the clock, and I think we are out I of think, time. But, I think we've landed. But, but what a way to end the Bible from 30,000 feet, that the Bible is reliable, it's true, and all it's declared. And we want to thank you for taking us on this journey this past 64 weeks. Okay. Thank it, you, Brian. It, it was, it was a, a wonderful ride, and we're looking forward to what the Lord has in store for us next. Well, I also need to thank my staff. People in the video room, in the audio, upstairs, Jay and Jason. Uh, Volunteers around the campus, people who have set up. Honestly, my part was one little part of so many other parts that have helped this happen. And thank you. You know, if we did all this and you didn't show up, it wouldn't have worked. So you made it work as well. Thank you for that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Word of God, which is accurate and it is reliable. And it, um, it is uh, something that you superintended, even through human authors, to preserve exactly the message you wanted to get across. And Father, we thank you that we're able to study it. I thank you that we're able then to apply it and give us a, a continued understanding of your purpose for our lives. Thank you for such a wonderful group and a wonderful place to worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.